right, we're here live from Chains to Change, the inaugural podcast. And I am Bruce Riley, the Deputy Director of Voters Organized to Educate. And I'm here with... Norris Henson, the Executive Director of Voters Organized to Educate. All right. How you doing, Norris? I'm good. I'm good. It's kind of exciting, man, this, this launch, you know. Uh, it's kind of like we're springboarding into new territory, uh, uh, kind of like new groundbreaking on behalf of the organization. But uh, I'm excited. So kind of like let's, let's just jump in. Yeah. Know? So, you know, we're going to have this weekly podcast for our listeners to, to tune into. Uh, and people that know us and people that rely on us, they... You know, they, they look out for our, the things that we post on social media. They, they listen for what we have to say on a panel or a quote in an article. Um, but here we are, you know, with doing our own thing. We're going for a, a one-hour podcast every week. We're going to talk about what's going on, uh, what happened. We're going to have guests on here. We're going to see what they're up to. We're going to talk about our folks around the country, people in the movement. And, you know, it's all about from change to change. And uh, But first... Let's talk about the like. How do we get here, man? Like, kick us off. Where did this <laughs> oh, yeah, all begin? Yeah. This, this, this. Uh, uh, it's kind of you know. I'm just sitting here thinking and listening, you know, as you're talking, and uh, you know, the how do we get here, man? It's kind of like a long time coming, but we have arrived. And I say we have arrived primarily because this is the spot that we kind of envisioned um, better than 35 years ago, man, inside of a prison law library, man, trying to figure out how to change our circumstances, not necessarily our conditions, but how to change our circumstances. How do we have an impact on the laws that's, you know, that were binding us? And so we, uh, while in Gota, we created this project under the Lifers Association called Angola Special Civic Project. And it was made up a group of guys who were jailhouse lawyers, uh, some guys who were just, and, you know, that term wasn't coined then, criminal justice advocates, but guys who were trying to figure a way out of prison. And uh, we started looking at what was going on around us all across this country. These prisons were exploding, and somebody was predicting that Angola was going to have the worst prison ride in the history of this country. And we went to thinking about, hmm, Attica and San Quentin and Soledad and all these places. And we was like, and nobody gave us that memo. I know Biggie didn't want any part of that. <laughs> no, no, man. We were, we were, we, matter of fact, it was Biggie who actually decided, hey, man, look, I've been working on some stuff, thinking about some stuff, but let's see, can we put something together, kind of like a white paper, and see, can we get these guys in the institution to kind of like buy it, you know, because one of the hardest things inside, you know this yourself, is the first question that uh, comes about is who put you in charge? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody wants to know you can probably have the best escape plan in the world and somebody going to figure out, well, who put you in charge of it? And so, yeah, but we kind of like went down that road, got, you know, uh, some good fortune fell our way. We started drafting legislation Early on, it didn't work the way we anticipated. I mean, we were kind of like naive to the fact that, okay, we put this in, boom, it's going to happen. Hmm. And the reality hit was uh, I had a conversation with some folks from the League of Women Voters who were kind of like coming in to help us. 
And one of the things I remember clearly was one of the ladies said that, oh, we didn't get our first bill passed for like 20 years. <laughs> and that was kind of like that, that punch in the gut. It was like, no, we're not trying to be around here 20 years mm-hmm. trying to get a bill passed. But when you fast forward, it literally took us 30 years to actually get the bill passed that we initially sought out to get done. So it's been a journey. And I, I, I say a journey because, uh, you know, when you're on a journey, there's no set destination. So we don't know where we're going to wind up at, but uh, we're trying to make all the changes that uh, we want to see, you know, mm-hmm. within this system. Well, let's fast forward a little bit so then we can kind of connect it back and talk about the 2045 law and recent change this past summer uh, that went into effect and, but this is a, a law that, that started way back in the day by you guys uh, uh, in prison writing a bill, connecting with the legislator, and, and, you know, and, and tell me what the point was for that. And actually, while we're here, let's take it back in chronology, the 10-6 law, right. and then some things that just happened this past couple exactly. weeks. Exactly. Well, the chronology, the, 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 the rationale about the 2045 law was that we found ourselves that Every time the United States Supreme Court made a decision that affected Louisiana adversely, that they became tougher. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, lifers going to prison in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, although they had a life sentence, they became parole eligible. They became eligible for release at 10 years and six months. Mm-hmm. And it was like clockwork, worked like clockwork. You just kind of kept your nose clean. Your 10 years, six months came up, bang, you're out the door. So if someone convinced you to plead guilty, they're telling you well, you're going to well, be out Well, that was the six. whole key then because back then, most of the capital offenses, and you know they considered rape to be a capital offense, murder of capital offense, the death penalty was in place. And most folks pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty on the uh, 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 position that if you plead guilty— you'll be released in 10 years and six months. Now, were they doing, uh, you know, going back, we're going to get all legal nerd for a minute on our on our listeners, but going back before the Apodaca case, were they doing non-unanimous jury cases on the death penalty in Louisiana, or they never were? They never were, not okay. on the death penalty. Always they had to have a, a 12, an unanimous verdict mm-hmm. to, to get a death penalty. But these guys were... Uh, you know, and the thing about it was the lawyer was, you know, I read a lot of these guys' transcripts. And uh, a lot of the lawyers were convincing the guys that, hey, man, this is in your best interest. Plead guilty. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to get out in 10 years and six months. You can avoid the death penalty. You can kind of like demonstrate to the state that you're not trying to make them spend all this money to prosecute you. And so guys hung their hat on that. Mm-hmm. But what happened was the 10 years, six years in 1971, and state versus done, uh, they abolished the practice. Mm-hmm. You know, they abolished the practice. They say it wasn't, and it's kind of funny when they say it wasn't a statute, but it was in, in uh, Title 15 that you could 10 years, six months get released under the parole statutes. And then when they, in state versus done, somebody who challenged his guilty plea on the fact that he had gave away his rights to this potential release date. And uh, the court, the state Supreme Court, upheld it saying, no, 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 no. That was just, you know, if and a promise. That wasn't like it was real. 
And so some guys still got released because they the balkanization transcript handed to a fact. And the challenge became not only what was the deal, who was the deal made with. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it was in black and white. The district attorney was on record saying it. The lawyer was on record saying it. Some family member who had coerced this guy or coaxed this guy to, hey, this is your best interest. Take the deal. And those guys were able to avail themselves. But in those cases where time had elapsed, some of the lawyers were kind of like vague about what transpired. Uh, even in the middle district, because by us being in Angola, you had to file in the middle district uh, of Louisiana, the federal court on Habeas, and it boiled down to the very same thing. You know, was this a probability or possibility? And depending on how the guy responded to that inquiry, uh, some of them sunk, some of them swam, you know. And so we went along with that. But what happened when the Supreme Court abolished the death penalty the first time in 1970, what the state of Louisiana did was created this first bifurcated statute of 20 years. Uh, you can get life, but you'll be eligible for parole, probation, or suspension of sentence after 20 years. And that became effective in 1973. What year did you get convicted? Uh, I got convicted actually in 75, but the case is from 1974. So I was under this 20-year life uh, statute. But 18 months later, when the Supreme Court abolished the death penalty around rape, Louisiana became tougher again. They moved that penalty from 20 years to 40 years. Mm -hmm. The premise was that most of the guys who actually were on death row once they reversed their, their debt sentence and they had to be sentenced to the next lesser offense, they became immediately eligible for release. But how many of them going from death row do you think would have passed the, the parole uh, process? Very few. Right. Very few. Very few. But what this state done was, I guess, to, you know, hold up the sanctity of— uh, You will die you know, in prison. Yeah, yeah, you're going to die yeah. in prison— uh, they made it more punitive. So it went from 20 years in 73 to 75. It went to 40 years. In 1976, what they did was they removed some of the provisions around who is eligible. And by 1979, all benefits have been completely removed away from lifers. Mm-hmm. So now you got three classes of lifers. You got 10-6 lifers, 20-year lifers, and 40-year lifers. And at this point, you're working in the in the, in the, the law, law library, library. Yes. at Angola. And so you got guys coming at you from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Hey, man, I have a right without a remedy. Mm-hmm. And so this is how we kind of like start using this as our litigation tool is that we have a right by statute to this, but we don't have a remedy to exercise it. And what started happening when the 20-year lifers started to file that they had pled guilty, and a lot of them pled guilty, that the courts were saying, you're too premature. Mm-hmm. You only have your 20 years right. in. And so by the time the guys got their 20 years in, now they're saying that, oh, well, the parole statute prohibits you from being eligible because you don't have a fixed number of years. So they start playing this little game between the, the statute saying one statute governs, the other statutes, just advisory. Mm-hmm. But the chilling part about this was during that era, 
every time a new statute came on the books, the legislators were lazy. And as opposed to researching if there was a conflict, all they put was a repealer clause inside the statute saying any laws in conflict are hereby repealed. Mm -hmm. So our interpretation was, okay, you can pass a new law. That means any existing law no longer exists. And so it became this journey and this struggle with the litigants trying to convince the courts that, hey, time out. You know, we tell you what the law is, and you keep telling us the law ain't right. Mm -hmm. And so by the time we, this is like in the 80s now, we're still challenging. Some of the 10-6s are getting, you know, getting their just due. Some of them are getting favorable rulings and getting out. But the lot is still stuck like Chuck. Mm -hmm. And so when we started looking at what we could do, and we kind of like started off at 10-6, looking at, well, we did a 10-state study of what goes on around the country, how people are sentenced. And we didn't use New York and California. We used Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, the Carolinas, Pennsylvania, because at that time they had the largest life for population uh, in the country without parole. Mm -hmm. And how, so, so back in the 70s, was there 6,000 people up in Angola? No, it wasn't 6,000 people in Angola back in the 70s. And matter of fact, that prison population didn't start to swell till like the late 70s, early 80s, when I guess in their mindset, life became life. Because long as people had opportunity, they was getting out. The armed robbery statute, the same thing. There was no such thing as that you go to prison uh, uh, to do 99 years. Armed robbery didn't carry but 30 years. And it wasn't until the, the uh, late 60s that they changed the statute from 30 years to 99 years without benefits. And so this is where the bottlenecks started to happen, that we start seeing more and more people come into the system with no mechanism mm -hmm. for release. Yeah, and some people you know, at home might be wondering like, why we're talking about so much of this history. But you know, how often do we hear you know, this kind of like general question of like, why is Louisiana the way Louisiana is, where basically everybody's set to die? You know, there's mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of people who are, you know, if nothing changes, they will just grow old and die by, by one form or another. And about two people die a week in, uh, in Angola, correct? Yeah. Matter of fact, even some, I once felt it was kind of like worse than that. I mm -hmm. mean, because even during the, I remember during the late, the mid-80s, like 87, they literally executed nine people over that summer, mm. you know. And so along with executions, then, you know, with, like I said, people growing old, getting ill, getting sick, and dying because, again, there wasn't the best health care system inside these environments. So, no, fast forward, we got together, collected a group of us, you know, under the auspices of the Angola Special Civic Project, and drafted a piece of legislation that would make people parole eligible at 20 years across the board for for uh, 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 for murder. For armed robbery, I think it was 15 years. For burglary, stuff like that, 12 years. And so we got blessed. And a newly elected uh, uh, official out of New Orleans, out of District 199, I believe, uh, Naomi White Warren, uh, was a guest at one of the LIFA uh, uh, events and uh, heard us talking about this proposal we were putting together. We we're going to try to find somebody to introduce it. 
And, uh, you know, like all elected officials say, can I have two minutes? And mm-hmm. so gave her an opportunity to speak, and she said, I will support this legislation. I would introduce it. Did she mention if she was impacted? Uh, she she didn't say initially, but she represented the district. She represented the lower night ward. Mm-hmm. And so she represented the district that most of her constituents uh, were vicariously impacted because their children and uh, ascenders and descendants wind up in the uh, in this system. Mm-hmm. And so she uh, filed this initial bill, and it was House Bill 1709. And uh, we filed it like clockwork. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get it out of committee. And it kind of put a damp on it. But kind of, let me back up a minute. Because the reason, the other reason we started the Civics Project was because Edwin Edwards was the former governor who just passed, was running for office again. And we realized that in order for us to get any real benefits out of somebody being in the governor's office, is we need to kind of like really educate ourselves politically about what's at stake. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of like, that was the other genesis for forming the Civic Project, to get our families and friends involved in the upcoming gubernatorial election. Fast forward during the election cycle, Governor Edwards drops out the race. He makes the runoff against Charles Buddy Rama, and uh, he just concedes, just gives the election up. And so that kind of put a damper on us. Then we realized then, well, what that meant was that it's going to be difficult getting out of the prison through the clemency process. Mm -hmm. That was during his first three turns had released better than a thousand people through the clemency process. So everybody knew if we got Edwards back in office, it was a shoe in that somebody was going home. Everything else was just kind of like a roll of the dice. So when he stepped away, that kind of like even accelerated our desperation mm-hmm. because now we're realizing we don't have but one other avenue. The courts have already shut down on us. The clemency process as we knew it is about to change dramatically. And the only thing we have left is the legislature. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of like really focus in on let's just keep pushing stuff forward and see what happens. So 1709 didn't go nowhere. The following year, it got filed again as House Bill 1250. Still didn't go nowhere. And so by 1990, uh, Representative Warren filed the bill again. And it was, uh, it turned into Act 790 of 1990, which created parole eligibility for anybody serving 30 years or more, but the the carve out was they excluded lifers, mm-hmm. and uh, the hardest part about that was the vast majority of people who had worked on this legislation was lifers. Mm-hmm. One of the I guess it was a plus and a minus was they had just created up at Tulane Law School a project called Pops, the project for older prisoners, oh, yeah. and their professor Jonathan Turley. Uh, was the supervisor, and he testified at the legislature in support of the bill that, you know, criminal menopause sets in at 45 years of age. And so that's how we got stuck with the 45. Because when we introduced the legislation, 
was no age limitations on it because we was considerate of all these young kids coming in at 15 and 16 with life sentences. And if we asked for 20, 20, 45 would mean they would have to do 30 in order to be 45 years of age. You know, and, and just for contrast, you know, meanwhile, where, you know, I mean, A, I was a, a high school dropout at the time. You were, you were doing this. But uh, when I got locked up, you know, not only a few few years later, um, you know, our life parole was it, it had just changed from 10-year eligibility. So the guys of your generation were, were eligible at 10 years. And then it had gone up to 15. So when I got locked up, lifers were facing 15 eligibility. And then if you had numbers, it was a third of your number. But if you had anything over 30, you'd be eligible at 10. So if you had 80 years, you'd be eligible at 10. You're not going to get it. But you so like so here you guys are fighting for eligibility at, you know, 20, 20. 30, even 40 years, whatever, you know, like any point in time in, in people's lives. And, uh, and the, the rest of the country is looking at eligibility in like 10 or 15 years. And, and it's kind of crazy because Louisiana is a copycat state mm. because we were a lot more lenient in the beginning. And then they start watching what New York did with the Rockefeller laws. Mm-hmm. And then they start sending people to prison here in Louisiana uh, for distribution of heroin, be it 20 bags or one bag, to life in prison. And uh, so we, aside from having the three classes, 10, 6, or 20, and 4-year lifers, then we had the garden variety of drug lifers, habitual offender lifers, uh, folks who are convicted of murder, folks who are convicted of kidnapping, folks convicted of rape, uh, folks who are habitual offenders. And so we had this real plethora of all these different situations that impacted the end result, that everybody had life. So when that bill actually became law, when Act 790 of 1990 became law, uh, it made us realize then that being on the cutting edge of change, that sometimes you don't benefit from the change Mm -hmm. you bring about. Mm -hmm. And what happened was it created a divide inside the prison because for those guys who had been fighting to create a mechanism for release, got left out, those folks who benefited abandoned us. Mm. You know, it was like, oh, I'm out of here now, you know, because most of them had kind of like either had 20 years and were getting close to 20 years, and they started piling out. But we kept kind of like pushing the envelope. Fast forward, uh, Biggie was one of those lifers who had a guilty plea Mm -hmm. and challenged in court that, in federal court, that he wouldn't have pled guilty had it not been for parole, uh, had he not had that expectation. Mm-hmm. And so that expectation became the whole thing. Yeah, It was crying by, well, the victim family, uh, but the victim family went along with the guilty plea. And so now it was even more evident that he had a right without a remedy. Mm-hmm. And so the federal court ruled in his favor, one, that he was eligible uh, for parole. Biggie had, over the course of the incarceration, had three clemency recommendations, never got none of them signed. And so he had the kind of like track record that would warrant a guy being in his situation to make parole. And so Biggie gets out. 
And so we're still there, kind of like chucking away, chucking away, chucking away. And then we start looking at other aspects of the the statue, you know, the probationary side of it, because it was a bifurcated statue, uh, and it was the first bifurcated statue. And so what we looked at was there were 21 other statues that were bifurcated. You can go to jail for burglary, but the first two years had to be served without benefits. Mm-hmm. And so we tracked all those cases to find out what happened. And that third year, those people became eligible. They started getting released. And so we raised the same concern about, well, what about these 20-year lifers about parole, probation, or suspension of sentence? And in those cases, it was like still saying, no, 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 nobody wanted to hear it. Lo and behold, in 1990, I got a new trial and because of suppression of evidence. And from the new trial— Wait a minute. How many people voted you not guilty the first time? Oh, 10, 10. I had a non-unanimous. No, but two two said not guilty. Two said not guilty initially. Yes, you're sitting there for how many years? Well, it was uh, 19 years. 19 19 years years. before Mm -hmm. you could kind of get those two not guilties to mean something. Right. To 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 uh, couple with not just that by itself, but coupled with suppression of evidence, coupled with the fact that there was an eyewitness who identified. The 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 uh, uh, the license plate on the back of a vehicle pulling away, but all they could say was one guy was taller than another guy, and the tallest guy was taller than the victim. The mm-hmm. victim was six feet tall. I'm not six feet anything now, you know. So and you guys couldn't get your police reports until could, like two thousand. Police report wasn't public records. Yeah, I was in prison thirteen years before police reports became public okay. record. Yeah. and on page four of the police report where he explicitly said that the victim identified somebody was already in jail by name. Mm-hmm. And so they called the prison to validate or verify whether or not this person was acting in prison. And the police report verified that the warden said, no, this guy's right here in the prison. So that was kind of like, again, and then on our direct appeal, Louisiana Supreme Court said, if that information exists, it can use it to impeach the only statement that they had in this case. And so it was a lot of other stuff that pushed the judge really to open the door to grant the new trial. Uh, so, yeah, so that's how we get to that point. But, yeah, those impediments, man, that— and this one thing that a lot of people don't understand about a lot of these older cases is that these guys didn't have access to police reports and DA files like they have today. Or public defender's office. Or public defender's office didn't have access to them either because one of the things was in the case was when the Supreme Court sent the case back, they allowed the judge to do an in-camera inspection. So now we trust in the judge who had already sit on this case to see you getting found guilty with a non-unanimous jury verdict and flimsy evidence, if any, mm-hmm. now we're getting him to say that you knew this stuff was in the record. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, but I don't think it would have changed the outcome. Well, that wasn't your decision to make. Mm-hmm. That was the jury's decision. And our situation was bring those 12 people back and ask them now, would this have made a difference 18 months ago when y'all voted initially? And I would venture to say they would have voted differently. Mm-hmm. And so, but this is how one of the lessons learned from how this system don't play fair, mm-hmm. you know, and why it's really incumbent upon people to 
really interrogate everything about this system and how this system actually operates. I mean, fundamentally, I mean, all the work that, you know, that, that we've been doing, the work that you've been doing long before me, but I've been part of for the last decade, is really undoing all the stuff that you experienced, Biggie experienced, and all the cats around you. And, you know, now, I don't, you know, a certain percentage of y'all are out, a certain percentage of y'all are still in, a certain percentage of y'all passed away. And, but that era is just like the darkest era of mass incarceration, you know, perhaps in the whole country when you really add in the non-unanimous jury on top of everything else. Right. And, one, you know, one of the things about that was that, you know, I still always wanted, I used to see guys I was in high school with, played music with, played ball with, in the choir with, show up at the prison. I was like, man, I don't know what's going on mm-hmm. out there, but something just ain't right that these folks are showing up. Because these were kind of like these clean cut kids. And then, you know, you start learning terms about racial profiling, what that looked like. You know, these things start to have meaning then because you can line it up against something. You can draw these analogies like, oh, I know this guy ain't this kind of person. Mm-hmm. And then, but you're seeing them on top of each other. And, and the thing about it was, all the vast majority of the life of population in this state are first offenders. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, we didn't had enough with you and that's it, kaput. Your first brush with this system, you wind up being sentenced to the rest of your life. So most of the folks that you see are surfacing now, these folks are first offenders. You know, I am kind of like excited by the fact that, you know, our, our organization played a part in reversing the non-unanimous jury verdict. We played a major role and the Justin reinvestment uh, uh, stuff in 2017. Uh, so all that now is kind of like shining that light in that darkness that, hey, man, this is what went on, and this is why we, this is how Louisiana, Louisiana got to where it's at right now, and it's primarily because of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we had, let's see, so the so we had the juvenile life without parole got struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court, and then Henry Montgomery's case, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a man here that you know here in Louisiana, um, made it so it was retroactive, right? And so folks going back had to get new sentences, not necessarily new trials, but new sentences. Right. And so we played a huge role in getting that that parole eligibility down from, I mean, some people were talking like 40 initially, right? right? right. And then, 35 and 40. And then 35. Right. And, then, and, you know, we, we objected. And we got it down to 25. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the beneficiaries uh, of that we, we heard yesterday yeah. at a rally, Ivy Mathis, uh, was a juvenile. Mm-hmm. She got out, and I, I think she got out in about 26, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 27. 27 yeah. And, you know, she'd still be locked up right. if, uh, if we didn't object to the so-called reform that, right. you know, the others were pushing for. And, you know, I, I think most of all of them meant well. They just didn't necessarily think strategically enough or, or you know— see the, the injustice right. in 30 yeah. or 35. Sometimes with people doing policy work, they don't factor in. Well, I, I put it this way. They don't get take their guidance from the folks who directly impact it. And I think that the benefit that we had, one, not only being directly impacted, but knowing I could put a face in a name to all 300 of those folks. It wasn't like there was just a hodgepodge of folks, uh, a mixture of people who just wind up. No, I knew these people as individuals, as personal people. 
And so I think one of the things was that when we went to meet with those folks and I, hey, man, what do y'all think is just and fair? Well, I got to hold on a sec. I just got to let people know that, um, you know, so when, when, when we were working on this policy change, you know, several organizations, some lawyers involved and, you know, some legislators, a lot of, a lot of people had interest in, you know, kind of writing this ship. And Norris had the juice to call Angola and say, get those people together. So all, give or take a couple people that mm-hmm. might have been in other spaces, and there was a couple of women who couldn't right. be there, but, and got them all in the chapel, used the Angola TV station to actually video this gathering. Uh, I was there, Carol Kolenchak was there, um, Ilona was there, and, uh, and you know, I, I think it was, it was pretty amazing just to be part of that, and I'd never been in Angola before, and, and here they were asking us questions, we were asking them questions, and then when I went up for the rodeo, uh, at one point, you know, some guy who was making belts was like, hey, man, I seen you on the TV. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I, you know, that was an opening to talk about, you know, the, the issues and what's going on. And so, you know, a lot of folks wouldn't think that a formerly incarcerated person who was doing a life sentence, uh, you know, could could have that kind of relationship with the prison, mm-hmm. who at the same time we're fighting and they know we're fighting that prison. Right. But, you know, we're, we're treated as a respectful adversary, I think. Exactly, exactly. And so, no, and even even in that scenario is that it was kind of like these guys understood then is that, hey, man, it's what y'all want. Because at the end of the day, when people talk about we'll cross that bridge when we get there, normally you're crossing that bridge by yourself. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, we need to know exactly that given opportunity to ask for something, what y'all ask is. And because of the three of us, me, you, and Chekhov, uh objecting at this hearing— that it changed the course of history in the sense that, again, you mentioned Ivy. Ivy uh, wouldn't be home. Uh, She'd still be waiting. Uh, A whole bunch of other these juveniles who were sentenced as adults uh, wouldn't be home. And so it's about how you advocate on behalf of people that you're working with and on behalf of. you got to give them a voice uh, in this scenario, because other than that, you're just advocating for what you want, mm-hmm. not for what they want. You know. Yeah. So that was a that was you know one of the the multiple big wins for trying to reverse your era, but a big part of that was also the Graham case and and you know EJI's work and mm-hmm. you know so th- then we've got the the '70s lifer bill, right? And so you know, and there was only about a hundred people who were still alive, right? From that, right. and they became pro eligible. And then we also had the, um, you know, we created the the geriatric parole law and and, and medical parole uh, furlough and try to get a few more avenues for release. Apparently, it doesn't get used enough because of some of the limitations on right, who can right. can so support that. Um, but then, you know, I, I think a big huge win was well. First, we had the non-unanimous jury, yeah, right. and we'll get into a little bit of maybe some of the deals, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and I say that in a good way that are that are happening. Uh, with the district attorney currently, uh, but then also, you know, we had the, uh, the the expansion of the 2045 law, right, right. and so so what are you hearing now about about the new version of the 2045? Well, law? The, the new version of the 2045 law, because in 1998, and you know, again, I can put names and faces to these things. Uh, a guy named Walter Barnett uh, made parole, and some folks were really displeased with him making parole. 
And so what they did, because he became, he's an armed robber, and because he became eligible under 2045, they went and repealed the statute. Mm-hmm. And this is what I tell people how mean-spirited and vindictive people become. You're mad with one person, but you pass a law that affects thousands. Mm-hmm. And in those moments that all these folks, and you make it ex post facto, which is literally against the law, yeah. but they get away with it. And so in 1998, all these folks who were eligible, 2045, got cut off. This got cut at the knees. And so this last legislative session, we were able to revisit that and to make that statute back retroactive all the way back in 1998. So it became 3,000 people became immediately eligible under 2045. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding uh, from conversations with folks uh, who run those entities that between 9 March 300 of them will have parole hearings. Mm-hmm. How many of them are going to make parole? Well, every tub sits on his own bottom. So, But we are hopeful that these guys who inside, these 3,000 folks, uh, get their opportunity to be heard mm-hmm. in front of the parole board, some of them 20 years beyond mm-hmm. that time when it should actually be considered. And that's what made me reflect back on the 20 and 40-year lifers because the 20-year lifers actually had served 40 years before we were able to get the law changed to go back to cover them. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about people who would have been eligible for release two, two decades ago are now becoming eligible uh, for release. And to their credit, most of them have done, you know, because parole is like whatever you've done for me lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of them have done the necessary things uh, to warrant them being released. Mm-hmm. And uh, to this parole board's credit, uh, that they're releasing folks, which is a real plus. Yeah. And, you know, District Attorney Jason Williams, uh, you know, someone who voters organized, you know, against the wind, heavily supported, yes. you know, yes. and, and, and turned out he won in a landslide against the, uh, the establishment candidate. And, you know, among the things he's he's done is he's made some – you know, he's revisited the sentences and, and resentenced, you know, in agreement with the judge and, you know, and, uh, you know, assuming that there may have been some families involved that are still around. Right. Uh, some of those old 10-6 guys uh, are, are being released and also 20 uh, non-unanimous jury cases. Right. And, and so what's about, about 100 the, people altogether? Well, well and, and one of the things about uh, the 10-6 is because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like these cases, some of these cases wasn't cases where – there was a life taken. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these cases were like kidnapping cases, uh, raped cases back then. But back then, you got the death penalty for mm-hmm. a, a sexual offense back then. And so one of the, uh, the guys who got released had done 56 years, man. And, uh, you know, uh, 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 so that was promising that they were looking back. But it goes back again because the thing that made that possible to look back was that we actually was able to change uh, one of the rules, 930, the post-conviction statute, mm-hmm. that creating Section 10 that allowed the district attorney, any district attorney, to look back at a person's case to see if there was an injustice done, and as opposed to flipping the case, can modify the person's sentence. Mm-hmm. And so this is what uh this district attorney decided to do it looking at these cases like okay the conviction gonna stand in place 
But like in the case of this individual, uh, Lewis Mitchell, uh, the district attorney allowed him to plead guilty to 40 years, credit for time served, that made him immediately eligible for release. Mm -hmm. And so their civil rights division is looking at these cases. Their other... Case Integrity Unit is looking at the non-unanimous jury verdict cases that how can a person actually be in prison when one or two people on those juries voted to acquit them. Mm -hmm. And so he has gone through these cases, you know, meticulously looking at them and getting the consensus from folks is that you have a right to a new trial or you can take the option of uh, pleading guilty for credit for time served, mm-hmm. but this all in concert and all in harmony with if there's survivors uh, from these crimes uh, that they have some consultation. And in most cases, because these cases are so old, most of the people are looking at, well, what have the person done for themselves since they've been in mm-hmm. and whether or not they are reconciled with what they've done. And when they see that in the record, it's kind of like, Okay, we fine. And Man. so some folks have been able to uh, be released. So I'm excited by the fact that folks are actually now having their day in court mm-hmm. because in the past really wasn't yeah, having their day in court. Yeah, that was just a kangaroo. Court, you know? That was just, right, you know, right. might as well been a sheriff pulling you over on the side of the back road. That's it. And it's mm-hmm. even like when we talked about the, uh, the responses from the United States Supreme Court. And when you was talking earlier, the response to Graham, the response to uh, Montgomery, you know, uh, 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 their response wasn't to just comply. Their response was to create another impediment. Yeah. You know, because initially uh, the uh, the case before Alabama, uh, uh, before uh, Montgomery. Uh, Miller. Uh, Miller. Yeah. The Miller case was when Supreme Court decided Miller uh, and left it up to the states to determine the retroactivity of it. You know, the state yeah. was out like, oh, no, no, yeah, no, never. no, no. <laughs> and so Montgomery came along, and uh, matter of fact, it was three cases, really, because Toka was in front of the United States Supreme Court, mm-hmm. but the state, the, the, the DA at that time in New Orleans, kind of like convinced him to take a guilty plea to not for his benefit, but to neutralize the litigation. Mm-hmm. And so when he took the guilty plea, that killed the litigation. But then Tyler, uh, the Supreme Court, was looking at Gary's case, and the DA in his parish did the same thing. And then Henry was the next case up. And then Henry Montgomery's case, a case uh, Henry had been in prison before John F. Kennedy got assassinated. And uh, Henry case made it retroactive to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so, but Henry, again, is the classic situation whereas... Um, you don't even benefit being from on your a, own. Yeah, not benefiting <laughs> from the change you bring about. Yeah. He made it possible for juveniles across this country to be considered for release. And Henry have had two parole hearings since the ruling. And in both cases, uh, you know, he hasn't been released. And so it's a real tragedy uh, in and of itself. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's I, I. You know, I feel like this work. You know, for those of us that, that study history, and I know you do. I mean, it. So much of it is like passing the baton. Yes. And yes. doing what we can while we can. You know, standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before us, and you know, the the if 
you know, just even from a, a legal and punitive standpoint, I mean, when people really dive into like, wow, they used to do, they used to execute 14 year olds, you right. know, like, right. you know, men- mentally ill people. And, and, you know, so we've had to like repeal so many things. And so, you know, it's like our job to carry the baton while we're here doing exactly. what, what we can do. Uh, that's where I think the real, real challenge is at with them getting to understand that and realize this. This law was put in place primarily to, one, disenfranchise people of color, uh, Afro-Americans at that point. Uh, at the time, there was over 100,000 registered Afro-American voters in the state of Louisiana. And when they changed that constitutional amendment in the 1890s, uh, it dropped down to 10,000 mm-hmm. people. So it was with this specific intent to uphold the supremacy of the white race. I mean, that's literally the language in the uh, state constitution. And so just that alone should make people want to kind of like walk back from that and say, you know what, we've done folks a disservice. And that kind of like it lasted for 135 years, seemed like it would be like Pontius Pilate, now just washing your Mm -hmm. hands with it and say, you know, we're done. We we, we need to kind of like start heading in a different direction. Some people, I think when the odds on us getting the law passed was really slim and none. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got it passed, had to have two-thirds of each body to vote on it, then two-thirds of the collective body put it on the ballot, had to get 50.1% of the vote. We got 64%. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, to put it in real time, it's like we won 61 out of 64 parishes. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like overwhelming that the folks in this state wanted this thing to change. But again, Louisiana was like, nah, we're not going to make this retroactive. We're not going to look back at these, yeah. this harm we've already done. But fortunately for us, United States Supreme Court, the very next year, rules to be unconstitutional. But well, again, what they failed to do was to make it retroactive. And yeah. so. And all these, you know, it, it's always frustrating, too, when you think of, like, who are the leaders and who are the followers, right? Right. And we talk about elected leaders a lot, you know, but really they're elected officials. Right. Some of them are leaders, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, you know, people talk about judicial activism. You know, it wasn't judges that, that led this change, right? right? It was the people that led the change. And a couple of legislators, you know, mm-hmm. who stood up in, in the— uh, you know, in that legislation, and it had to convince their, right. their colleagues. You know, and, and you know, J.P. Morrell was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that you know, then we had. I mean, we put together. You know, we instantly had to do a pop up statewide campaign, hey, right, raise right, some money. Right. Uh, you know, brought in our, our you know usual suspects partners, and mm-hmm. and that was uh, that was quite a lift. And we were polling at what somewhere around thirty percent before we right. got started. And I right. was like, I don't care what the polling is before we get started. That's right. That's I don't right. know what it is after we, get, we get, get moving. That's right. right? That's right. So I think I think it's it's really important for the, the people to understand and the elected officials to understand, you know, where this leadership needs to either come from or what what role they play because they're also carrying a baton. Right. That's state sponsored right. oppression. You know, you didn't write the the Constitution eighteen ninety six. But now you're the one in charge of it. That's right. That's right. You're in charge of straightening it up, you Mm -hmm. know. And so I think you said something good, too, about what leadership looks like because it it brings to mind on the very same night that we had the non-unanimous jury verdict on the ballot, uh, the state of Florida had Amendment 4 on the ballot to restore the right to vote to over a million and a half formerly incarcerated people. And the same thing, that that those laws come from this Jim Crow era Mm -hmm where they were just squashing the power of people of color. 
And so that campaign was led by a former incarcerated person, somebody who had been directly packed. And to kind of like lift him up, uh, because of that work, he made the New York uh, 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 Times uh, 100 influential people in oh, America, yeah. you know, former yeah. incarcerated person. Yeah, you, you graduated know? law school the same year yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Desmond <laughs> Meads, you know. Matter of fact, when I met Desmond in 2006, uh, the person who introduced me to him, Gihan, said, hey, man, I want to introduce you to somebody. He uh, He's just like you, bro. I said, what you mean, just like you? He said, the jailhouse lawyer, man, he don't take no for an answer. I'm like, whoa, really? And so met Desmond and, man, you know, you fast forward where we at right now, man. And uh, literally, man, collectively, not just Desmond, me and you, but uh, there's a collective movement, man, of former incarcerated people, man, who are changing this country for the better. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, you know, it, a lot of hard work happening, you know, kind of the early part of the 2000s that really started to lay the foundation for people to be listening to our experiences and to want to work with us and not just like work against us or, or work in front of us or instead of us. Right. And so I think the other thing that's happened, you know, as we've been able to kind of pick up the mic and like literally right now we're like holding the mic. Yeah. yeah, But, uh, you know, along the way, it's been a lot of other great folks who are either vicariously impacted, Mm -hmm. you know, who could be elected officials. They could be working at nonprofits or as public defenders or whatever. And that community as well has really started to embrace us more rather than run away from us. Right. And I think we still have some of these these vestiges of the past of the people that don't want to touch with a 10 foot pole, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they're missing out on the reality that we're part of this community. You That's know, right. we're parents, we're neighbors, we're homeowners, we're, That's you know, it. we're workers, we're, how many jobs you created in this state? Oh man. I ain't tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and, you yeah. know, so I mean, well, you know, going back to Desmond for a minute, I mean, this guy was just named a MacArthur uh, genius. Yes, yes. And he got a big chunk of cash. Yeah, yeah, and if he's yeah. listening we'll right now. We'll put that, but yeah. But, uh, but, you know, you know, and, and our, our friend Dwayne Betts yes, as well is an right, incredible that's right. writer. That's right. Uh, and, and lawyer. Yeah, and, and a lawyer. lawyer. And he, you know, he and I actually, uh, we kind of, uh, we did, we kind of went in around the same time. We were about the same age. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're part of that super predator kind right. of uh, mm-hmm. narrative. Right. And, you know, when I think of like, my guys of my time, you know, we all were between about 15 and 24. Mm-hmm. You know, we all caught between, and it's such a range, you know, anywhere between, you know, 10 years and, and life without parole. Oh. And I've been wanting, you know, someone to kind of study our little cohort mm-hmm. because it's kind of tight enough. And I'm like curious, like, what are the variables? What are the factors? The nerd mm-hmm. in me is like, okay, well, what led so-and-so to get a lighter sentence? What led so-and-so to get parole mm-hmm. or not? And basically everybody, I think one guy went back and it wasn't for anything serious, right. but everybody else is out, parents, yeah, well. all that stuff. Well. Yeah, and, uh, well. but you know, it's, and some, you know, we don't all go to law school, right? right. But like, look at you. Right. So. Right. And, and then since you mentioned law school, look at Calvin. Calvin is yeah. in uh, law school right now. And so, uh, you know, we have, we are aspiring to do bigger things, especially in our community. Uh, to make them whole, because you figure for years I was on the outside looking in, and I can kind of like see what needs to get fixed, and so that's what we've been doing. We showed up with our tool bags, man, trying to help repair the damage that we see that exists in our community. And so, given the you know the the work that we do, 
highlighting these different things. And it's kind of funny when people think about it. And I was talking to a former city council person last week, and uh, he was sharing with his family about how I convinced him to create ceasefire mm. because he didn't have a clue what it was. And the thing about it, not so just to create ceasefire, but who he had those uh, credible messengers had mm. to be. They had to be people who had street cred, people who can go in these communities and tell these guys, time out, man, and folks would respect that. And so I think we have, you know, the housing work that we've done around Handel, you know, you write the policy. So, you know, the talent that exists amongst us is uh, phenomenal, man, because I tell people all the time, when they ask me questions about how I know all this, I'm <laughs> saying, what you think I did in prison? Just play dominoes yeah. and checkers all day? And, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. That's it. And if you That's never it. had to get down to the riverbank to get some water, you may not know the way. That's right. But if you're thirsty and you got to get down there somewhere or another and there's a blockade, yeah. You can start finding out the way. That's and you can right. start telling other people about the way. But at the same time, you might be like, if they really wanted to make an easy way, that they would do this. That's right. Right? So we spent all those years hearing from people about, like, what it's like to get out. And they come back, the mm-hmm. things that they face. You know, we, we, we read people's cases. We understand how the, the system's working, the, how, what the judges are ruling on, what the police are doing, what the prosecutors are doing, what the defense attorneys are doing or not doing. Mm-hmm. And so then we can put all these things together start being like, man, if they just did this or if they just That's took right. away that and thinking about it structurally, thinking about it way upstream so it impacts more people downstream and not just picking out something that might help one person or two people, but like what might help the whole community. And the good news is you people are listening now. Yeah. And yeah, it's really yeah, exciting yeah. to be doing this stuff. It, you know, you work on a Sunday too, but like, yeah. <laughs> but we, you yeah. know, we got a whole yeah. building now. Yeah. We got, yeah. uh, you it. know, it's, it's, it's pretty epic. Um, yeah. But, you know, in this podcast, I, you know, we definitely want to hear from other people. And, you know, so folks should be contacting us with their questions about what they want to know about the system or, or what they want to, you know, Put, have us push on as right, well, right? right? Because we do work with the community and we've got all of our social media and people are always hitting us up with this mm-hmm, question, mm-hmm, that question, mm-hmm. our emails, our office, our organizers. We got, right. what, 30, 35 canvassers out 35 right now? 35 canvassers out right now. And so there's a lot of people in the community that if uh, you send them in the community, you can ask them a question about uh, who we are, what we're doing. And same thing with uh, we want to make this, this is our kind of like launch, our kickoff. Uh, and so we want people to, you know, follow us, keep up with us. And if there's anything you need to know, I mean, it may not be uh, directly to you, but it may be in reference to someone that you want to help, someone you're trying to assist. And sometimes a lot of my, my daily work sometimes is just responding to phone calls and emails around folks trying to have a clue about what does this law change mean for mm-hmm. my loved one? Mm-hmm. Uh, does this mean he's coming home? Does this mean he have an opportunity? Uh, how do I participate at parole and pardon hearings? Uh, you know, the, the court system at uh, Tulane and Broad. Uh, how this, what's the mechanics in this thing, you know? And in most cases, do I need a lawyer? Do I don't need a lawyer, mm-hmm. you know? And... I tell people all the time, it's from the facts come the law, not the other way around. So, uh, And folks need to be mindful. But we also kind of like tell people that you got to help us help you. 
I mean, we in this work to do it, but we can't do it by ourselves. And so we're encouraging people that, uh, come on, come on down your ring with us. Roll your sleeves up. And there's a lot of work for all of us to do. And uh, we can push this plow a lot faster with two of us on it than just mm-hmm. one of us and somebody standing on the side giving instructions. So I, I, the, the biggest thing is the ask is that, come on, come get involved, get more involved. The more involved you get, the more it's easy it becomes for us to start making the change or being the change uh, that we envision. Yeah, people got to, you know, always be bringing a friend, always be telling somebody, each one teach one is a, is a good mantra. And, uh, you know, everything that, that we talk about, you know, we always are, are trying to, to organize people and empower them to be leaders amongst their group. We've got hundreds of folks on the inside that we have regular communication with. I'd say over the last five years, we've, we've communicated with thousands of people. You've been to hundreds of parole boards almost like each year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, we're, you know, we're, we're deeply uh, working with so many folks, so many organizations, great orgs. Even the parole project is going to play right. a big role yes. in, in all those yes. all those old timers that are coming up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got we got the women's house that's coming up um, yeah. next week. We're definitely going to be talking all about the jail here in Orleans, and be talking about all those things. So um, you know, folks that are in TV shows being shot in the jail, people that are curious about that, you know, tune in. Um, and definitely, you know, one of our big things is people having their voting rights and people uh, accessing the ballot. October 23rd is the last day to register to vote online. People that got convictions, um, if they have five years on parole, then they're eligible. They got to get a piece of paper from their PO and bring it in, Uh, but they can fill it out online and then bring the piece of paper into the registrar personally, even on the morning of uh, election day, that late, but those people are eligible to vote if you're on probation and you ain't been locked up behind it, which is basically everybody on probation, you're eligible. You need to go get a piece of paper as well. Same situation. Uh, and if you're clear of your record, then you're definitely eligible. And you should tell everybody, uh, which is, you know, close to a million people in this in this state got a record, uh, felony record, and that's long, long gone. So I think, you know, we need to always be getting our folks out there. Election day is November 13th. The early voting is going to start on October 30th. It's a Halloween surprise for everybody. And, uh, and you know, we're here to, to get our folks organized, get our folks engaged. You know, everybody's got somebody who's either currently locked up or formerly locked up or themselves have, have been in that department. And it's a sad state of affairs that, you know, we have to organize around that. But this is what we're trying to undo. We want to live in a world where, where you know, my daughter, your grandkids don't have to be organizing around people who are impacted by, the, by mass incarceration. Maybe they can organize around something more, more productive, something like education or environment, housing. But it is what it is, you know, and we got to fight the suppression. So, um, there's, there was so, you know, I had a million and one notes and I knew that we wouldn't get to all of them. I was just like, I, let me jot some things down. Let's get Norris talking. Let's uh, kind of figure out how, how we got here. Um, and I think people that, that know us, you know, maybe they learned a little something new. Uh, people that don't know us, you know, you're going to get more. There's going to be guests on. I just wanted to get, you know, a full hour with Norris today. Uh, and, you know, next week we're going to have some people talking about the jail. And we're going to get into things and we're going to keep getting into it. And this is a year-round thing. It's not just about elections, not just about legislative session. 
It's about all the stuff. We got federal things, we got our, our colleagues across the country with the former incarcerated convicted people and families movement, uh, you know, friends of ours that are doing this work. Um, and yeah, I'm excited. From change to change. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I think that's the biggest thing. I think the biggest thing is stay tuned for all the other exciting conversations that uh, we will be putting forward. And if it's somebody that you want us to interview, just let us know. We'll reach out to those folks and try to get them uh, to come into the studio with us and sit down and have this conversation that uh, folks are requesting. I mean, when you request somebody to show up, that means you got some questions for them. And uh, we'll create a mechanism moving forward, either call in where you can call in and drop your question, or you can email the question into us once we get this thing in place. And uh, when that person shows up, we'll have those questions to run off to them and you can hear their response, you know, up close and personal. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Mike, uh, doing great work in the community and, you know, having us in here in the studio. Uh, really exciting. And so, you know, we definitely want to, you know, intersect with some of the some of the kids you're working with. Uh, you know, bust, I mean, I'm not going to ghostwrite a whole album, but, you know, something, you know, crazier things have happened. Right. We could have rap battles in here. We could do it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, thank you. And uh, from Chains to Change... We out. We out. We need each other.